There was another argument I think to be made that in some ways the kitchen is already on fire. The bond market is actually kind of crashing. If you if you inflation correct global bonds, they're down 30%. And this is yeah. like one of the largest pools of assets in the world and considered to be conservative investments is down 30% over the last three years in purchasing power. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. We are here again for another week on Blue Collar Bitcoin. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, were thrilled to sit down with OG Bitcoin investor, as well as fintech and hard money analyst, the Tour de Meester. Tour is the editor-in-chief at Adamant Research, and to say that Tour has been looking at Bitcoin for a while is an understatement. He's on record encouraging investors and fund managers to pay attention to Bitcoin all the way back in 2012, when Bitcoin was trading at $11. Not only is Tour wildly intelligent and his insights provably timely, he's also just a refreshingly humble, honest, and modest dude. Also of note, his Adamant research reports have been published at, shall we say, opportune times to accumulate Bitcoin. His most recent report, How to Position for the Bitcoin Boom, came out in April 2023. Trust us, you need to read it. We cover a bunch of cool topics in this one, including the early days of Bitcoin, what he calls pronoia disease, Bitcoin as an early retirement bet, should you ever sell your Bitcoin, and avoiding pimps who have guns. Plebs, I also want to say here that Bitcoin isn't just powerful or pristine. It's also cool. It's cool as fuck. And fucking is pretty cool. There is no more exciting way to track Bitcoin metrics and its adoption march forward than on a block clock. CoinKite makes the block clock micro and the block clock mini. I personally rock both of these bad girls in my house. One is down in the basement studio and the other my wife allows and has come to enjoy in the freaking living room. Let's be real, you and I. You've wanted one of these for a long time. Just give in to the temptation, will you already, and spend some of those hard-earned sats on a block lock. Check out our affiliate link down in the notes for a discount on block locks. And as always, use promo code BCB, that's B-C-B, for a discount on the best hardware wallet on the planet, the cold card. Tour, welcome into Blue Collar Bitcoin. I think the last time we interacted, it was at some Miami beach club at this soiree deal that were, we were smoking Cuban cigars, probably blowing them straight in your face. There were fire jugglers. There were chicks in a pool and giant mm. see-through balls doing whatever. BitBoy was, you know, slinging shit coins <laughs> at the back of the beach. Yeah. You know, that was a good time. It was fun interacting with you, putting a face to the name, but uh, it, I think being in our basements in the friendly confines of each of our homes is maybe a little more each of our speeds. Uh, we appreciate you. Thanks for dedicating some time this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. It was uh, it was fun hanging out that night. There. I think it was like whale night at the uh, Miami conference. Yeah, it was an interesting being back there, seeing seeing how the sausage is made a little bit. It's fun. <laughs> we I, yeah. we actually got to speak to Adam back a little bit too, and that was that was really cool. It really was. Yeah, he was there too. It's really cool to to see him in person. In true back fashion, he was wearing like cargo shorts and had his backpack and. You can you can <laughs> you can spot a humble pleb from a mile away, can't you, Tour? Can. It's like literally since the first time I ever saw Adam, it's always like with his like with his backpack and yeah, he's yeah. he's always gonna be the same. <laughs> Tour, I have long appreciated your content. I think as I mentioned before we clicked record here, 
it was you and Andreas Antonopoulos that I was reading pretty heavily in 2017 when I started understanding what was going on here, trying to finally put the put those beginning building blocks together to figure out what makes Bitcoin different from all these other things that are proliferating in the space at the time. And I just wanted to affirm that I really appreciate even like you did a lot of uh, TA stuff. You did a lot of analysis of the price versus the previous bull runs and all of that, which I definitely appreciated. Definitely shouldn't have traded at all, but I did. And, you know, ups and downs on that. But I've learned since then, it's better to just DCA, especially for me. Um, I'm sure there are people out there that can definitely have an edge doing that kind of stuff, but it's not me. But I guess what I'm saying uh, here is your pieces and the adamant research pieces that you've put out over the years have been some of the most signal-packed content I've run across. And so anyone listening out there that isn't reading these things or isn't following tour, definitely uh, do that. Um, you've been on the money, especially with these adamant research pieces over the years. And, and the most recent one, which Dan and I both dug through intently before this talk, and then a whole bunch of the other stuff as well. But I would like to hear some of your origin stories. You mentioned in a piece that you did, it was a presentation in 2013 it was called Seven Lessons I Learned in Bitcoin. That, that aged extremely well, in my view. Um, <laughs> sure did. Extremely well. Tell us a little bit about your exploration of South America. You said that you, when you first ran across, across Bitcoin, it was in Buenos Aires. How did you get to South America? What was the impetus behind that? Give us a little bit of that backstory and how this all kind of dovetailed into Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, I, the short of it is probably paranoia. <laughs> I was paranoid that, because um, I had been learning about you know, history of banking, business cycles, I was really worried about a, a big crisis in Europe. And um, my parents had always taken us travel all around Europe. Uh, we'd uh, drive around with the car to Eastern Europe even. And so, yeah, when I was in my 20s, I started thinking like, man, what am I going to do? Like, I, I, I'm starting to get employment online. Like, maybe, maybe I need to look around the world and see where I want to live in case of a big crisis. And then also I was I was author of a financial newsletter, so I also felt like as a as a way to like find value for my readers, like let's check out Latin America because at least there they know how to survive inflationary crises, like they just happen all the time there. And so that really was like the the, the motivation. And um, so yeah, in, in uh, Buenos Aires, I'm, I met some uh, people that I'd met online. They became friends. And they were like literally saying, like, dude, like you gotta look into Bitcoin. And we were both like libertarian. Like we had we had you know a, a bunch of values in common. They're like, look at you gotta look at this Bitcoin thing. Uh, and they they were in it already. Like this is 2011, and they were like they had set up mining rigs in their basement. This is before specialized mining chips existed. Like that, just graphic cars that were running um, the, the the client and mining Bitcoin. Um, yeah, so it was just a perfect, perfect introduction to Bitcoin. And then I forget because I made two trips uh, to Argentina. One was like two years later. So sometimes I, I mix things up. I think it was on the second trip that there was a guy, uh, Santiago City, who um, also early Bitcoin adopter. There was this, uh, that was, yeah, that was the second time because the Bitcoin meetup actually had some people. Like the first one was like five people at a barbecue. Um, but the second one, there was like maybe 80 people. He, had, he was like somewhat of a like low-key online celebrity. Uh, and so he was talking about Silk Road, like in Buenos Aires. He was saying like, my people, like he just had seen the light. It's like, if you want to order something, any substance from anywhere in the world, you can do it with Bitcoin using the Silk. Anyway, 
I took a little video of that, and then my friends afterwards said, like, yeah, maybe better to So you guys that. did mushrooms, and then you got into Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> yep, got it. As you do, uh, as everyone does. As you do. So I deleted the video, and uh, of course, he didn't say anything illegal. But um, anyway, so yeah, that, that was a, a really amazing introduction. The right place, the right time. Because I was also looking for something to write about for my audience, you know, like uh, how to... Even if you can't move across the world, like what what can you do to protect yourself um, uh, from from an inflationary depression? Right. Before we move on, you said something that really interests me. You are a libertarian from Europe. My, I mean, I I think the perspective on that from my position is like you've got to be an extremely rare bird. Am I completely misreading that, or are you one of the f- how many libertarian? What's the <laughs> what does it look like out there? Are there more than one? Is there is there more? <laughs> Oh man, that's so funny. That's the first time I've asked that question, and and you're right, you're spot on. It's a it's a rare breed. Uh, we we put together the Rothbard Institute uh, in 2006, and we started like I think even before that. We oh yeah yeah we had like Phaedrus, which was like a libertarian. Our idea was like let's make a libertarian student organization, but we never got beyond like five members. Uh, and I remember distinctly meeting a guy who actually lives in texas now but he was in his probably like late 40s and talking to him and realizing like oh my god this guy is flemish and a libertarian it was like my first like adult libertarian that i ever met in my life but so yeah it's it's um if you look at the political spectrum like it's basically you know like the the most right wing party is uh, much more left than even a yeah. centrist in the hmm. US, you know so it's very rare to but then the weird thing is that because it's so rare the people who are interested in this stuff they actually are more fearless to think from first principles uh they, they're less kind of like moderately libertarian it's more kind of like yeah let's do this all the way kind of like when you know the iron curtain fell and and communist people were wanted to learn about the free market and then they they went to read Ayn Rand and Rothbard and, you know, it's just, so, right. so it's, it's pluses and cons. Like in the UK, there's a lot more libertarians, but actually people that are more radical are, are rare in, in the UK. I'm going to quote a section of that seven lessons piece, Josh referenced that I just pulled up here because it juxtaposes Europeans versus Latin Americans. And then I'm going to introduce a thought about firemen who were around. So you say, I'm going to quote you here, Uh, the European outlook you call as pronoia disease, like the opposite of paranoia. And you say that general outlook is politicians will secure our deposits. They will find a way to contain inflation and keep the banks open. And the government will also find a way to keep paying our pensions, our health care, my child's education, etc. I find that young people in Latin America suffer from a lot less of this pronoia disease. They instinctively know that the answer to the question of their economic well-being is not in the decision of some government official, but in their own entrepreneurship, in their own imagination, in their own effort and initiatives. I see, Josh, and this isn't just not just to pick on the circles we run in, but to take a slice out of our world, if you're a career firefighter, say in our state, there is this dramatic implicit trust in current financial programs, specifically Mm. stuff like defined benefit plans. We're told we're getting a pension. Like It's going to happen. It's legislated. We've been guaranteed. What do you mean there's a risk there? This is a deep theme that I want to hear you elaborate more on because I think that 
many Bitcoiners are those that don't suffer from this pronoia disease. They have a healthy skepticism of the institutions above them. Talk a little bit about that juxtaposition you see between Europeans and Latin Americans, and then any other thoughts you have on that idea. Yeah, so I believe pronoia is defined as the belief that there's a conspiracy in your favor. <laughs> that basically, like, there's this group of people that are working really hard to make you happy always. And, um, and so, yeah, then you can rest easy and, and, uh, and believe all that. Um, yeah, and in Latin America, you know, it just, you can't survive economically if you believe that because it, it gets betrayed every day. You know, you see all these hollow uh, promises that just aren't kept the next year or the next month. Whereas in Europe, because there is that kind of legacy of wealth and there was a lot of savings built up in the, after the war, like 1950s, 60s, 70s, like a lot of um, economic capital was built up. And so uh, that means in the, the later era, when, when, when the welfare state grew and grew, politicians for a while could make up on their promises, like they, because they would just issue more debt and be like, oh yeah, you know, like look, it's going great, and you know, this is we're paying out the pensions, and 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 of course, not mentioning that, well, the pensions that we're paying out now are not saved up by the same people. We're just using money from the young people to pay the old people right now, anyway. So, so that unsustainability is becoming a lot more clear, and uh, you know, I feel sad. You know, part of why I've been working to warn people about this is kind of like from a mental health point of view because it's it's really shocking if you've been in this pronoia world of fantasy for years and years and years that all of a sudden your pension is gone like you're not prepared or you know right. whatever the child welfare program stops or uh the price of eggs triples you know simple things like that so i just find to, it's a lot easier to to be uh, have a happy life if you, if you've mentally prepared you get a, a softer landing that way like if everyone goes from one day assuming all of these things social security is going to be there for me my pension's going to be there for me x y and z you know my private pension and all of this stuff kind of fails at the same time because fixed income collapses and that's what this stuff is massively invested in now you've got just chaos across the land instead of having people like warning people ahead of time getting them in their own, you know, a 401k or something where they have at least some kind of nest egg on the side, it can give them some other reassurance in the case that that happens. You know, it's like, it's kind of like a preppers, like crazy preppers in the US that are loading their basement full of food. Like there's a rational way to do that. Have 30 days worth of food in case the power goes out for a little bit. But when you're loading your base, you know, there's, there's just a good happy medium, I guess is what I'm saying. And yeah. you can do that and still live a pretty productive, decent life. The other thing I just wanted to chime in here on is that I think a lot of people dismiss this, what they would categorize as fear mongering, thinking that these things are going to evaporate overnight. See, social security hasn't gone anywhere. Or in the case of a firefighter, see, the pensions are still paying out. And I think it's worth noting, these things are very likely to just phase out insidiously. So you, you are probably still going, especially if you're a firefighter and you can play this whole hero card and you've got tons of taxpayer support to at least keep the thing somewhat intact. You, you, it's very likely in my mind that you're going to get paid out something remotely close to the numbers that you're expecting. But the buying power of those numbers is going to be significantly diminished. And Josh, we mm -hmm. are currently living through the first several years of us watching retirees lose tremendous buying power and not even notice it. Some of the guys that 
or yep. here when I started, and I've only been on seven years ago that have retired, the amounts that they're entitled to are buying far less. And it's happened very, very quickly. And that, I guess the, the, the tragedy, but the benefit is that this is becoming more and more obvious. People are starting to realize that you need to hedge out of this systemic risk because it is there and it is actually being manifest. Yeah, the Titanic is actually a pretty good metaphor because like, you know, you could kind of see what was going on with the ship for a while before it actually sank. And it's true, a lot of the lifeboats went out empty or nearly empty in the beginning. Uh, so it's not like there's not enough room for people to move in and protect themselves. Actually, it's good for all of us. The more people are warned, the more people start taking steps, the more equally this... Um, the, the savings are going to look like once we're, we're on the other side of the fiat paradigm. Because, yeah, like it's totally what you're saying. Like, I, I've never believed that they will stop paying out the pensions. It's just uh, the money's got to be worthless. So it, it'll, yep. you know, they'll, they'll always keep printing enough money to cover everything. But of course, inflation is going to run way faster than sure. uh, they will keep up with wages and pensions. Yeah, and I think that's the concept that so many people miss. In nominal terms, yeah, you're going to get your pension. But in real terms, in real purchasing power, it's going to be massively hampered. Uh, and that's why we beat on this drum so much. And we do our, what, our little part that we think we can do to help the middle class get onboarded to some of these lifeboats, at least um, from whatever way we can try to build a narrative here that can help people understand why it is so important that they should at least have a hedge position in Bitcoin um, for their financial life. Yeah, that's what I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw, but that's what I mentioned in the, it's funny because you guys are firefighters that I, uh, one of the suggested ways of looking at Bitcoin is think of it as homeowners insurance for your financial portfolio. And then, uh, you know, because people don't expect their house to burn down, but they do have fire insurance. Um, and so it's similarly, Bitcoin is going to pay out a large amount if the inflation burns down your your portfolio yeah that that's my hypothesis at least yeah no i think the three ways you broke that down we'll get to those in a little bit but those were succinct they i think they were really really good categorizations of how to how to view this how to move your way into it and uh if you want how to potentially retire early uh before we move off your piece your presentation in 2013 you said something else in 2013 which was really eye-opening especially Back then, when I think the price of Bitcoin, I looked it up on, it was like December 7th, 2013, when you did that talk, it was $650 or so. And you said, we shouldn't be afraid of estimating the future potential value of one Bitcoin in the range of 100,000 to 1 million. In other words, the risk reward ratio of Bitcoin is still extremely positive. You were calling between 100,000 and a million in 2013, which had to be absolutely feeling preposterous to a lot of people then, a hell of a lot less preposterous now. Has that range changed for you at all? Do you still feel like that's a pretty uh, rational range for this to end up in in the next decade or so? And how, do you, how did you feel about saying those numbers back then? Yeah, absolute numbers make less and less sense nowadays. Like I could mm. be saying Bitcoin is going to be a trillion dollars. Like, you know, if, if it all right. depends on the inflation. Uh, and so you can, you can kind of like look at how the wealth is divided in the world and and uh, I think some some estimates are that there's like $500 trillion worth global wealth. And some of these things are just hot air and they're going to evaporate. 
Um, and you could, so you could say maybe Bitcoin is going to be a hundred trillion, like maybe one fifth of all the wealth. And I find it hard, like once you push beyond that, it's kind of like, really? Like how can money be worth more than what half of everything? Like that, that's, that's pushing it. But if you're thinking like 10%, 20% of everything in the world, yeah, why not? So, so like estimates of like a $3 million Bitcoin is actually not crazy in today's, you know, dollar value, three, five somewhere between one and five something like that you're talking about three million dollars worth of purchasing power as it stands today yeah not just three million dollars because it all hyperinflated. yeah and exactly you know what i'm saying yeah. no no no. I, I do mean and again this could take um i mean because we're talking about almost like a a shift in in religions like it's really a big paradigm shift so it, it might really take a, a generation like this might be you know our kids or maybe even our grandkids that are looking at purchasing power like that but then again, yeah. you know, you know the, the thing is also like we're not operating in a vacuum. Like if, if Bitcoin was Bitcoin and we had like we were like in the 1950s or something where like fiat hadn't gone crazy, then maybe the growth would have been a lot slower. But things are, I think they're, they're just, the meltdown is not very far away, I'm afraid, and in the fiat world. How, how has the, for someone that's been in as long as you have, how has the trajectory gone compared to what you expected? And this may be a tough question to answer, but if I had told you when you gave that talk that we'd be sitting at the valuation we are today with the people talking about it today, would you have said, that's about what I expected? Maybe that adoption's slower than I expected. That's more dramatic than I expected. Put yourself back in those shoes and, and think through kind of where we are today in comparison. Yeah. I remember 2020 feeling very far away. So if I would do projections, it would be like, oh, in 2020, maybe, you know, like, so I, I might have said like maybe 100,000 by 2020 or something like that. Um, I don't think I would be that surprised that we would be here, although just I would be surprised that we went to 65 in what was it, 2021, and that we're now yeah. only at 30 two years later. Uh, it this is a long bear market, so I would be more surprised at you know how it went rather than where we're at today. It's basically the same thing. Like if you think from first principles, like Bitcoin is either gonna win or it's gonna lose. Like I never really thought that we would have a hundred different monies and that Bitcoin would like maybe have one percent of all. It doesn't make sense. Like there are so many network effects uh, when it comes to money. So then that's you just think logically. It's like all right, well, what if Bitcoin wins? You know, it's of course, everybody at the time was saying it's going to zero, and that's kind of boring, you know. Uh, what's what's important is to find: are there any flaws? Are there any technical flaws like that? That's but to kind of keep talking about like, oh, it's going to zero, and I would always listen to those people and try to see what arguments they had and try to steel man my own like theories, and that's part of why I've been writing about it so much is that I I uh, just wanted to know if I'm not crazy uh, to have these ideas. I, I think your your point about this playing out over generations is really apt. And it's something we talk about quite a bit on this show. I, I do think that there are people that need to ask themselves, are they low time preference enough for Bitcoin? For me, the last, we'll say three years, what it has done for me is it, in some ways it has elongated the time frame. I agree that when we were pushing into the 60,000s, Josh and I both lost our mind to an extent because we'd put in, let's call it the thousand hours of research at that point and spent years looking at it. And you see the price moving and you start thinking, 
this snowball is moving downhill very quickly. The last few years, I'm not saying that that can't happen. I'm not saying that there won't be dramatic moves, but I think it's caused me to to take pause and take a step back and think through the time frame I'm looking at. I'm as bullish as ever. I'm as enamored and captivated as ever at the implications of Bitcoin. And I think there are some signals that are just remarkable about who's talking about it and how it's entering public discourse. But having said that, there are things that could happen. There are dynamics at play that could cause this thing to to work itself out over not years, maybe decades, right? And so you need to kind of sit there and and that that factors into position size too. Are you ready, willing, and able to wait? Let's throw out a number, 20 years for this to reach the valuations you expect. And I think that should come into play for for people of different ages and different mindsets as they allocate here. Um, a question I have that I'm I'm curious is what do you think is the biggest hurdle Bitcoin has overcome since you've been involved? And what is the bit what is the biggest hurdle that you still see ahead for Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean the obvious one, of course, is adoption. You know, like Bitcoin didn't have adoption, now it has adoption. Maybe I think we're maybe talking about seven to ten percent of the population in advanced economies has some exposure to Bitcoin. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like it's in that range. Like we're at, at the it's that same feeling of like the internet in nineteen ninety five, where like everybody knows what it is, and and a bunch of people are very actively involved. Uh, so it has that feeling, and I think surveys would probably confirm that. Um, but so yeah, that that feels like a bit of a cop out to just say adoption. I think the biggest challenge was in 2015, 16, early 17, the block size uh, wars. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a great book about it, which great book. I'm embarrassed to say, actually, haven't read. <laughs> but it's I good. know Jonathan he is a fantastic sure. researcher, and uh, it must be good. Like all his other research was just top notch. And so, but I, I also, it's like, I, I lived through that whole thing. And so I will definitely read it at some point. But, um, but yeah, so basically that was really the only time that I can remember that there was a big push, a very substantial push to try and change Bitcoin's constitution, uh, to really try and uh, change some of the very basic rules that Bitcoin operates under. And it's a kind of a, it's, it's a, one of those clauses, it's not obviously not explicitly, there is no constitution, but there are certain values that are embedded in, in you know, in, in the code and in, in, the, in the white paper and then the cypherpunk movement. And one of the values is that uh, is censorship resistance, um, basically that you want to have a network that can't be attacked very easily. And so that means that the trade-off leans towards being conservative in terms of how resource intensive it is to run a, a full bitcoin node and people always think like oh but you know the blockchain size is only actually you would have to look it up maybe like 500 gigabytes today or something mm -hmm. so we can let that run because it's what is it 100 bucks for a one terabyte drive or something but the bottleneck is actually uh, censorship resistant bandwidth so because you have to relay all that information up and down the internet and you might be in a in a, in a communist country or another a country where there is censorship so it's censorship resistant bandwidth and that's where the whole argument comes in to keep the blocks small and so at mm. the time these bitcoin startups were they wanted to grow fast they wanted to expand and they didn't like that all of a sudden we saw uh 
transaction fees that were climbing and making it harder to like buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin because Lightning wasn't really there yet, the Lightning Network. Right. So, so that was scary, you know, to see like a lot of Bitcoin startups and miners all bet together to try and, you know, really um, crank up the block size. I didn't have a heart for it and crank up the block size. And so yeah. the fact that we overcame that is huge. It was an enormous precedent. It's like a civil war and we survived it. Uh, we were on the sidelines back then having very little understanding of what was going on. I remember, I wonder if it was like 20, September or October when the Segwit stuff happened and, all, and the split happened. It was wild. And I had no idea what, what to do or what to think about it because I was so new to the space. But after you know, grokking it six months to eight months later, realizing the gravity of what just happened, it was pretty substantial. And I wish I could go back and understand it the way I do now, but uh, you just can't do that. Uh, it, it, it shook my understanding and conviction, to be honest, because it was really early. And I remember, Josh, you explaining it to me. I can remember you being like, Dan, we're going to get like these other coins. Like it's going to, none of this made sense to me at the point. Right. And I remember, I remember thinking, this just sounds like a clown show. And I, I say that because, folks, people still have that thought. If you go too deep, too quick without context and someone doesn't have full understanding and you start explaining hard forks, you know, yeah. UTX consolidating UTXOs to somebody that doesn't even know how to cold sort, it just we could think of tons of other examples. It freaks people out. Like you need to, you need to give them baby food until they can get the bigger context. At, mm. at the higher level, Bitcoin is remarkably simplistic and, and functional and easy to use and scalable and all that. But if you give people too much too quick and you just vomit into their mouth at some party, um, it could scare them away. And I remember that that could have had that effect on me. And I think it probably did hamper my interest in taking a bigger position size, which honestly, in fairness, made sense back then. There were more unknowns. I think yeah. people that entered, say, in the last few years, even from our history tour, we weren't around when you were, but even like the ecosystem has changed so dramatically since 2017. The yeah. narrative surrounding Bitcoin, the adoption, even the altcoin conversation, like the, 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 the advent of quote unquote Bitcoin maximalism just was in a totally different space even back in 2017. Mm. Yeah, because because from a technical point of view, like engineering wise, I was never worried that these these alternative. So I maybe just to back up for the audience. So like a hard fork is when you you tweak Bitcoin's code to the client to such an extent that it no longer talks to all the other nodes in the network. You're basically making a new coin with new rules, and but uh, you don't tweak it so much that the private keys don't work anymore. So anybody who has a wallet with a private key can then um, access their coins on the old network just like always, but also all of a sudden can access these new coins on this weird little new network that you're booting up. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and that makes it confusing. Like all of a sudden you have like access to two coins, like there was Bitcoin and then the branding as well, like because they were trying to hijack the Bitcoin brand. So they would call it Bitcoin right. Cash and Bitcoin Satoshi's vision and like there were all these forks. Uh, like from an engineering point of view, I was never worried because it was very clear that the, the, the Bitcoin core developers, they knew what they were doing. They, they didn't waver. The people that had the most skill to keep, keep everything stable stayed with just Bitcoin. 
They just stayed with the, the Satoshi's rules, so to speak. And then it was more the opportunistic developers who switched, who were hoping to make, basically it's a pump and dump scheme, right? You're, you're yeah. trying to build up this new story and saying that the old one is going to be obsolete. Um, I mean, of course, to be fair, some people really were misguided and really believed that this was the future, these bigger blocks. But so, but it was a huge PR war where there was intimidation going on. Um, and actually, up to then, it's a little bit like if people are familiar with Noster today, like Noster is a very, it's very similar in com- how it feels to the early days of Bitcoin. It was kind of like, mm. it, like innocent. There are no wars going on. There's not a lot of beef. There's not a lot of money going around. And so weirdly, it was like the loss of innocence in Bitcoin where all of a sudden there were these very aggressive manipulative tactics that were used. And so that's when people like Saxing Mao came to the fore to actually uh, start speaking for Bitcoin. Because there was so much abuse happening, like, you know, uh, uh, just just insinuations, uh, uh, all kinds of weird psychological attacks. And so in a way, we needed our own army. Uh, and that's where the Bitcoin toxicity comes from. Bitcoin maximalists, like that, that kind of toughness comes from that period where, I mean, I've had friends who were physically intimidated at Bitcoin meetups by like these, these, these big block ha- hacks, you know, people who... You get beat up at a Bitcoin meetup? You got you to gotta get in the gym, man. Not beat up, but intimidated. <laughs> yeah, like even like, sorry, but like even death threats. And like, it was, it was yeah. crazy. Scary times. Weird, weird times. Yeah. When when I look back on that period of time, I I remember understanding that I can split Bitcoin from Bitcoin Cash using some obscure wallet that I found, and I remember absolutely shitting my pants because I'm on some website learning how to do this that I'd never heard of, not knowing if these people are scammers. Now I'm sending my Bitcoin to this wallet so that they can they can split it for me so I can take it out. I remember just absolutely thinking there's a very good chance when my Bitcoin goes to split here, I'm not getting it back. There's a very good chance, but luckily I did. And then the other thing that scared the pants off of me was immediately, well, maybe not immediately after the split, but I'm sure you guys remember, Bitcoin Cash went to like 50% of the value of Bitcoin. Mm, very yeah, rapidly. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sitting there looking at this like, holy shit, is this going to overtake? So I'm kind of riding the fence at that point. Like, what do I do here? Do I sell this shit? Do I hold on to it? So I held it because you don't want it. You just had your bets. You know, you don't know what's going to happen here. I ended up selling it for probably less than half of when it went down to maybe 25% of the price of Bitcoin. But that was a really, really rough. I mean, we were in some some serious swells back then watching all of that play out. And it wasn't Absolutely. easy to, to it was not easy to parse through as somebody who was entering the space. It, it continues to hit me over and over again. And by the way, the, the Block Size War book is outstanding. Um, mm-hmm. everyone should read it. We'll link it in the show notes. It's so well done. And we need to have him on, Josh. We've been meaning to yeah, do that did. for a long time. Um, but the, the, the significance of that period continues to hit me over and over again. Had it gone the other direction, I really think the entire future of this project was completely fucked. And it makes me think of a... I forget where it was. I was trying to find it here on Twitter. I couldn't. You responded to somebody that was calling Bitcoin like boomer coin and there's nothing to build on it, which isn't true. But you, you basically, you just saying Bitcoin doesn't change good. That is the entire value proposition here, folks. If this thing changes, if the base layer consensus rules start to change, this whole project is completely yeah. out the window. And that is so paradoxical in a 21st century 
tech environment where people are just used to moving incredibly quickly and breaking fucking everything. And here comes this piece of China, this robust piece of anti-fragile China that we set in the living room. And we say, don't touch this thing. Leave it alone. Put whatever the fuck you want around it, but leave it alone. That is the whole point. That is what differentiates this from everything else and gives it the potential to do everything. It is Bitcoin's unchangeability that gives it the potential to change everything. Well said, Dan. Well said. No, while we were on the topic of, of talking about Bitcoin Cash and altcoins, in the past tour, you've, you've uh, recommended that people kind of hedge, <clears throat> hedge their bets or buy some altcoins in maybe 2015 in that range. Um, you mentioned that it's not a bad idea to have some alternative currencies just because you don't know what's going to happen. Some of the, ma- the major cap ones, and you've since changed your mind, um, specifically in your last piece, uh, you urge people not to waste their time and energy and money on altcoins. Can you maybe elaborate on what it is that changed in that four or five year period of time, actually more like seven year period of time, uh, between when you thought it was a decent idea to have your your uh, bets hedged in altcoins versus now when you think in the crypto space, quote unquote crypto space, Bitcoin is the only thing that's worth your time, effort, and money? Yes, I, I wrote it down and I want to answer it, but uh, would it be okay if I just harken back quickly to our the yeah. conversation about Please the block do. size wars. So I was just remembering that one of the things that made it so scary, that whole idea of like Bitcoin splitting and all of a sudden we, you know, bigger block Bitcoin, maybe it's going to win, is that actually we had that parallel universe of Ethereum that was up and coming and where they actually had uh, a smart contract, the DAO, you can look it up, T-H-E-D-A-O, the DAO. Um, massive amount of money went into the DAO because it was some kind of, it had a profit, uh, a promise of profit and blah, blah, blah. And it was all a bit harebrained, but really like, I think they put about 7% or something of all Ethereum into that one contract and then it got hacked. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, basically the core developers, what they did is they created a hard fork and bailed out the whole network. So they created a new coin. And um, and decided then to give everyone a bailout in that new environment, and the uh, and so the old Ethereum still exists. It's Ethereum Classic, so it's just a shell of itself because all the developers moved, and so it was weirdly like this parallel reality where the bad guys win, you know. And I'm not saying that you know it's evil for them to want to do that, but it's so dangerous to create a precedent where you're going to bail out right. companies or. You know, exactly. you want Bitcoin to just be boring and objective and, and kind of like gold. Like you're not going to change the physical properties of gold just to rescue uh, some company. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I feel like it does tie into talking about altcoins in general. And I've been very vocal about being critical of Ethereum uh, for years because in my opinion, they represent this Silicon Valley ethos of like move fast and break things which is not how you want to think about Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is like you're building a nuclear power plant for the first time in the world and you don't want it to blow up. And so you got to really extremely cautious like that. Or it's like, you know, you're building the rocket that's going to go to the moon for the first time. Like you need a lot of padding and, and you don't want to move fast and break things. Um, so anyway, that as a prelude to the altcoin discussions. If I could just add something there, it's, it's just, Bitcoin is reality. If 
5% of Bitcoin gets stolen from somebody, there is no one that's coming to save you. This isn't where no one's going to hard fork Bitcoin to save that 5%. Like it's just, it's as if your gold got stolen out of a vault. I'm sorry, but we just can't conjure the gold back for you. You either need to go figure out how to get it back yourself. It just isn't going to happen. Whereas in the world of these altcoins where there are entities or people that are in charge who can manipulate or can change things, it's not reality. Like this is a, it's a fugazi where people are in control. It completely disregards the entire reason for this stuff to exist in the first place, which is to keep the control away from, you know, the hands of people generally. Like that is the point of Bitcoin. It's to keep central planners out. It's to keep people from manipulating. It's to keep human manipulation out of our money. That is what Satoshi's original intent was. Yeah, he compared it to a, a boring gray metal. He's like, imagine Bitcoin yeah. as a boring gray metal that doesn't have any industrial purposes. The only difference is that you can send it through a communications channel. Like, would it get any value? So yeah, it's he 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 saw it as like inventing a new atom on Mendeleev's table like, uh, in the digital world. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, about the about those, you know, it's true. In 2015, I wrote a report, uh, had a position for the Bitcoin rally. And in that report, I was like, you know, when you invest, you, you buy Bitcoin, but you might also want to buy a, a little basket of altcoins. It was like, in, you know, allocate this much. And, uh, and that was before the big altcoin, you know, bubble that was, uh, that came in 2016, 17. Yeah, I mean, I say altcoins like it's like that's like the old-fashioned way of saying it because it's like alternative to Bitcoin. But most people nowadays they speak about crypto. You no, know? right. Also, pre-Lightning Network. I just wanted to add this oh, is yeah. pre pre-Lightning Network scaling too. Completely mm -hmm. different climate. That if you never lived through, there wasn't a solution for scaling at this point and throughput. Mm -hmm. Right or privacy. Privacy was uh, an issue as well. I mean. I think there was a lot of confidence that Bitcoin could scale if you talk to the smart people uh, and that it would have to happen modularly like it's in layers like it's happened now. But you're right, the concrete you know, protocol of Lightning didn't exist yet. Um, and so actually that is the narrative that a lot of these altcoins were built on. It's like, we have way bigger blocks. We have much more higher transaction speed. Bitcoin can only do like three transactions a second. Uh, uh, uh. You know, like it's it's terrible. <laughs> uh, it's just so ridiculous looking back, right? But um, but so yeah, they were. That was a big one. Then they had narratives about we are quantum resistant. You know, if quantum computing takes over, then you can just crack uh, the Bitcoin code, and, and uh, you'll be able to hack into any wallet. Like that was another like narrative. And then Ethereum's narrative um, in the beginning was like, oh, you know. But we have smart contracts. You'll be able to do JavaScript on the blockchain. Like, you know, it was... Yeah, the world computer. And yeah, and then later it was that was also tied in with that they're faster than Bitcoin. So like you can compute on the blockchain, like calculate all this stuff. Whereas Bitcoiners were just saying like, look, you know, this is a long-term project. Let's just be, build a stable base like a, in a building, like build the foundation really stable. And then... Satoshi always wanted smart contracts, but uh, it's just a matter of doing it securely and safely. Um, so it's really like walk before you run. So to all of that to me is a prelude. And so back in 2015, there, there was some discussion about, you know, is 
the particular proof of work algorithm that Bitcoin uses, like, is it actually going to work out? Are there any, it's like, it was like the discussion about the unknown unknowns. Like, are there things that were not foreseen that could cause problems where maybe we do have a silver to Bitcoin's gold eventually, where there's a, a bit of a different trade-off? Because uh, there, there were so many, of course, in theory, there was like, yeah, we'll put layers on top of Bitcoin, but like, you know, I don't know, you couldn't, they, they weren't there yet. So it was, it was just a lot harder to, to assess like how, how able is this particular Bitcoin code able to do, you know, in terms of doing that. So that was my thinking about, uh, about uh, altcoins. I also was thinking about the analogy of, yes, there's going to be a long tail distribution. You know, in a, in a free market, usually there is a winner, but then there's a lot of like smaller competitors. I looked at like programming languages where you saw that there's one really big one in terms of adoption and then there's a lot of smaller ones or like human language, like English is very dominant, Chinese, but then it, it trails off quickly. So that, that was kind of my thinking back then. And then gradually over the years, it just to me became more clear that no, Bitcoin is just a simple protocol like uh, the shipping container or like the... Uh, what's another example like TCP/IP, right? The uh, protocol underlying the internet, and like those kind of things. And so uh, there, there's too many network effects to really want to switch to um, to using multiple at the same time. It it doesn't make sense. Uh, and and in the report, I, I make the comparison with um, the nucleic acids protocol, Love which this is a, section. Yeah. a difficult way of talking about DNA and RNA. RNA. Uh, basically, that is the way that information is encoded in the biological world. Like literally, every organism uses this protocol to um, <clears throat> to to store the information of uh, you know the, the 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 physiology of of animals and plants and uh, to pass it on. And uh, and so, if you were to invent a new protocol, you would be up against. All the like Darwinism would turn against you. Like all these organisms uh, could attack you. Just how like Bitcoin miners could switch and start attacking whatever new little network comes up and tries to compete with it. So there's a big, big moat uh, there in the biological world, and I think also in the Bitcoin world. Mm, man, I that theme of basically Darwinism and natural selection building off of the constancy of that nucleic acids protocol. Really? That's, a, that's akin to what you've alluded to and I mentioned a second ago of simplicity and immovability at the center, allowing for ingenuity and development at the edges. Right. Um, but you're right. When, when, if, you, if you insert, and, and I'm just regurgitating you here, I think from, your, from this, I think it's your most recent piece that that was yep. in, if I remember. Yeah, it is. Which will also link, it's titled, How to Position for the Bitcoin Boom. Basically, when you compete against that nucleic acids protocol. Sure. You're not just competing against the protocol, you're competing against all of the natural selection and innovation that's been enabled by that protocol. And that gets to the essence, the very core of why challenging network effects is so freaking difficult. Like Jeff Booth often says, you need a minimum 10x improvement to meaningfully compete with another entrenched protocol or industry or company. And this is why it's another theme that takes time to marinate for people before you put it on the grill is that just to create another Bitcoin accomplishes 
absolutely nothing because Bitcoin is so much more than Bitcoin. It's everything built on top of within and outside and around Bitcoin. I think you just said that better than I did in the report. Thanks. <laughs> I'm literally just basically this conversation so far, Josh, has just been us reading tour and then telling tour what he wrote. We're just prompting tour towards the LLM yeah. right now. We're just prompting <laughs> him with his own prompts and he's just doing all the work for us. Well, but then for me, it's the same. I mean, we're all just kind of little, you know, little cells in a, in a, in a big tissue. Because for me, it's the same. Like I, I read forums and I read things and, you know, that goes into what I write. Dan and I often joke about we're just a couple of clowns <clears throat> who love to read and we love condensing this stuff into, you know, what we just regurgitated on here. Um, whether we do it eloquent, eloquently or not, you know, is up for debate, but we that's what we do. Like, we're not the, the thought leaders in the space by any means, but we do nothing, folks, engorging ourselves in information yeah. and then regurgitating it back out. We'll apply uh, more butter to the muffin here and say that if you have not read tour, you need to, to said more eloquently, more lube. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say more loop to the Bitcoin miner or something. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, um, no. So another, uh, so you mentioned TCP/IP and how that's the backbone of the internet. There was, I'm, I'm grasping for the competitor you mentioned in your report. Oh yeah, but Gopher, that was actually right? the yeah because like because there's another. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the layer on the top. World Wide Web. Yeah, the World Wide Web. It is the standard now. That's why we type in www. Um, uh, right. uh, podcast dot com or forget your website. Absolutely. But but so yeah. So that one. But that was there was a war going on early on between Gopher and www. And actually, uh, Gopher for a while looked like they were gonna win. So yeah, we also discussed that in the report. Uh, people often forget, like they think like, oh, it was always this way. It's like no, no, no. Uh, there is often fierce competition early on between industry standards. But the way that you kind of enmeshed that back into the point was you said that back in the, in the 90s, if you wanted to get exposure to the internet, you had to find yourself some kind of dot-com company to invest in or some company that was doing infrastructure, some play around the uh, infrastructure of the what it was to become the internet, right? Yep. But now with Bitcoin being this base layer, we have direct access to what is essentially uh, an ETF. Oh, if you could go back to the 90s and you didn't have to take exposure on pets.com or Google or Amazon or one of the other myriad of 10,000 failures that there were, you could simply buy the protocol itself, which wasn't possible then. But now with Bitcoin being this fundamental layer, which also has this coin that you can buy that's associated with it that you know makes it the, the entire point of how it runs is this coin. You can have what is essentially an ETF exposure to everything that's built on Bitcoin mm. by just simply buying Bitcoin. Um, I thought that was a very powerful way to look at it. Yeah, Trace Mayer has, uh, this is years and years ago, but he, he made the comparison of Bitcoin being like a, a highway network like with cars on it. And, you know, it just, yeah. it just zooms value all across the planet. And so by that analogy, it's like you, you get to own part of the highway and some of the cars that are driving on it and, and actually own it, whereas an ETF, even there, there's still third-party risk. Uh, but with sure. Bitcoin, you could actually really own the, the backbone. Yeah. That's a name mm. I haven't heard in a long time. Whatever happened mm. to Trace Mayer? He just kind of Trace Mayer is still around, going strong. I'm sure we'll hear more of him in the future. Um, he's, uh, he's one of the absolute legends. He's uh, definitely deserves the, the label of the very first Bitcoin analyst. Like He was writing a 
a crazy Bitcoin price targets back in 2011. He, he first wrote about Bitcoin when it was five cents. Like I, I'm like, you know, I'm boasting as oh, I was five bucks and think five cents. <laughs> you know, we're talking yeah. about a market cap of like, I think it was like not even a million dollars or something, uh, maybe like $5 million. God, that's so unbelievable. Like people that have the foresight for that. So yeah, like, and, and he came from the gold world. Like he came from the world of, of uh, gold and also um, privacy. And then he's also, um, he has a master's in accounting. So he had this uh, really great way to analyze Bitcoin. Like definitely a lot of the concepts about network effects and just, you know, things that we use all the time come from uh, Trace Mayer. That's why I kick myself in the ass so much because i mean i was a huge gold bug after 2008 i read about bitcoin in 2011 remember thinking this is never gonna work god i just kick myself in the ass every day but you can't go back you know it just is what it is i mean like i remember for my newsletter i was researching uh the startup from italy that was uh doing um cold fusion <laughs> uh l-e-n-r low energy nuclear reactions and they had like built this thing and they had they had, um, you know, proof that it worked with videos and like they were raising money. So, but that was a scam. <laughs> so, you know, that's the thing with like with Bitcoin as well. Like early on, there's so many things that fail. So, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we've got to be careful to not have that survivor's bias of like, oh, I was stupid to not see it early on. Mm. It's like, no, like a million things failed as well. Right. right. Mm. That's a really important theme. It's easy to look back and kick yourself, and and you know even from our vantage point, the 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 2017 environment, 2018 environment was different, and I think this this gets back to like risk adjusted returns, and I think for someone that feels like they're late to the party, they're not because it it, it is easier and more comfortable to take a significant position size in this climate, in this environment, with these people entering the fray. Much more easier to do. Yes, the price is thirty thousand, but there's a lot fewer unknowns in twenty twenty three than there were in twenty twenty, than there were in twenty seventeen, than there were in twenty twelve, and that that'll continue to march forward. And I think the the risk components of this asset continue to decline precipitously as as adoption moves out. So I, I just say that to encourage people not to kick themselves. Oh yeah, the opportunity yeah. is is still there, and the the, the downside there, there's a. There's a safety net there under underneath the trapeze that that wasn't when a lot of quote unquote OGs got in, like yourself. I think in one or two decades, no individual is going to uh, do single sig transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain anymore. And so, for you to be able to tell your kids, like I was sitting in my basement, like you know, sending a Bitcoin on the main chain, that makes you absolutely unironically an OG, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. that means all the Bitcoiners today, like, because I mean, you can only do three transactions a, you know, a second, and the fees are going to go up. You know, there's going to be days when to. a fee is going to be the equivalent of like ten thousand dollars or something. Like, you know, like it'll be like chartering a jet or something to like send a Bitcoin transaction on the main chain, and so that'll be like all the corporations are going to be doing that, and of course, wealthy Bitcoiners. Um, so yeah, I think it's so early still. Mm. Mm. it's like spinning what? up your own your own uh, mail server like that that kind of thing like who does that anymore you, you know your own email server that that right. kind of thing one thing i like about uh 
some of your work and how you speak about it is you do get very practical because I think, you know, especially even on a show like ours, Josh, we get, we get into the macro, we get into the philosophical, we get into the tech and there's people that have listened to eight episodes sitting there thinking, okay, so how the fuck should I approach this thing? I really like your, your various allocation strategy suggestions. You've got insurance against systemic risks is one. Bitcoin as a speculative asset is another. And then early retirement bet is a third. And you, you do have the chutzpah to attach allocation percentages to these. Would you mind walking us through these three and, and sort of hand-holding our audience who's like, hey, I get it. This thing's a big deal. How should I enter and how should I think through allocation size? Yep. Uh, I'm actually taking, <laughs> taking my report here is page 19. Um, just read I'm, it. Because I want to make sure I remember it right. Yeah, yeah. We, me I mean, we've it. just been reading it. So, I mean, if <laughs> yes. you go ahead and read it too, that's totally fine. <laughs> um, no, anyway. So, but so, yeah. So, I, I, I put it in three categories. Because I, I, I have noticed that when you talk to people, uh, it depends where they're coming from. It depends how often have they heard about Bitcoin and what is their financial situation. So, like, you, there is not one way to invest in bitcoin and so roughly also speaking, what are the size I, of their balls because that's uh, yeah, if you're going for right? early retirement you better have some cojones to hold on <laughs> yeah right or, or or how how much do they know themselves because i think that if you know yourself and you know mm. you struggle with volatility you know it's very wise to actually have a lower allocation you might actually end up better financially in the long run yep and you'll have totally more uh, less gray hairs on your head um so yeah so so what I mentioned earlier in, as we were talking is, is the idea of Bitcoin as an insurance against systemic risk. And that's where I put 2 to 5% of your portfolio as a, as a percentage. And the reason it's so high, because if you think about it, like homeowner's insurance is only about 0.25% uh, of the value of the home that you pay per year. So, so wh why put it so high? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, uh, you just buy 10 years worth of insurance right away, so that's 2%. But there's another argument, I think, to be made that um, in some ways the kitchen is already on fire. You know, like, you know, the bond market is actually kind of crashing. If you, if you inflation correct global bonds, they're down 30%. And this is yeah. like one of the largest uh, pools of assets in the world and, and one of the most considered to be conservative investments is down 30% over the last three years in purchasing power. So anyway, so yeah, two to 5% of your wealth as an insurance against systemic risks. So um, if uh, there's a big bank run and your bank does not get a bailout, because last year and a half, we've been seeing lots of bank runs and they all get bailouts, then uh, Bitcoin really is going to protect you in life. So then another way to look at Bitcoin, if uh, maybe you're a bit younger, um, is um, Bitcoin as a speculative asset? Because uh, because uh, let me quote Doug Casey here. He's a uh, he's one of those legendary libertarian investors. Um, I used to get his newsletter. Oh, really? Very cool. Yeah, the, way the, back in the day. Uh, actually, I I um I uh, gave him a physical Bitcoin. He has a Casasius Bitcoin. Does he? Uh, I met him in Argentina cool. back in 2013. Um, yeah, a very interesting guy. So he he defines speculation as such he says a speculator does not allocate capital in order to grow a business or create something he simply takes advantage of distortions in the market to increase his personal share of existing wealth most speculative opportunities have political roots 
taking advantage of distortions created by laws, regulations, taxes, or other government actions. And so if you're taking action to protect yourself against inflation, that is speculation. So I feel like we often like put away speculators as like, oh, they're gamblers and this and that. Actually not. Like you can be a conservative person and engage in speculation because you want to protect your family from inflation. But it's just a different mindset from like a value investor like a Buffett who's like, oh well, I'm just trying to grow this business and it's you know it's cheap now, so I'm gonna buy it now. Like you could do that in the 19th century under the gold set. But so anyway, so in my opinion, Bitcoin fits in that like speculative category. If you want to protect yourself against inflation, Bitcoin is a great hedge. So that's why five to ten percent allocation. Um to, in order to help offset either losses during the bust phase of the business cycle or value erosion during aggressive spikes of inflation. And then the last one, which I remember back in 2015, I did the, roughly the same categories. Um, and the way I published it was via DocSend, this website. And uh, I could actually see which page of my report got the most clicks. And the one that said like, Bitcoin as an early retirement bet, like that was the most popular page of the the whole report. <laughs> uh, which I mean, it came true, right? Bitcoin was a yeah, hundred. All those people that read that are retired now. Two hundred fifty bucks, so that's like a hundred yeah. times. So that was one percent of the value of today. So you ordered not a hundred x. Josh, there's um, our episode title, by the way. There's the hook yeah. right there. <laughs> that's <laughs> your hook. There you go. Um, so um, so yeah, early retirement bet. Um, because, of course, Bitcoin is way more mature than it was then. We've had way more adoption. I think that the safety element is way higher. That's why I suggest 10 to 50%, 5-0% of your assets in Bitcoin if you want to bet on early retirement. And, of course, um, this is more geared towards younger people in general who have you know, less of a, a large right. saving pool. Um, and, uh, but that's still one significant exposure, uh, 10 to 50%. Yeah. So that's, that's how I look at Bitcoin investing. Yeah. I've had older family members approach and talk about this and I don't, I mean, obviously it would be very bad advice to ever tell anyone that's anywhere near retirement to expose themselves to 50% of Bitcoin to 50% to Bitcoin, because there's just no telling what it does in the short term. Even five years from now, we can't, we can't confidently say this thing's going to be 10 X bigger in five years. There's no way you can, you know, realistically do that. Yeah. What if you need surgery when the price is like down 70%, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You don't want your relatives eating cat food because you told them to put 50% of their <laughs> income into or their retirement into Bitcoin. And now you got to support them. So let's keep that. Just keep this realistic. Um, younger people who've got more time to recover from, you know, an issue or have a 40 year runway before they need to retire. I think it's, it's a, it, it's a proposition that makes sense for some people. And strong, reliable cash flow and plan uh, Bs. I, I, you, you hinted at it earlier tour too much. Bitcoin can mean that you end up with less in the long run. I think through anyone that's aware of Bitcoin, Tina, he di publicly divested from some of his stack earlier, I don't know, it was like last year or something. I think he's still got a huge percentage of his net worth, probably somewhere around 50%. But he took some risk off the table. He's just like, I cannot afford for this thing to go down to, I don't know what the numbers were. I'm pulling things out, 10, 15K. Like if that happens, right. he's irreparably harmed. And what he's doing is selling way more Bitcoin than he's comfortable with. So too much can mean less for certain people. 
these wow. m- these really big allocation strategies are for for younger incredibly cash flow consistent individuals um we're as bullish as anyone but just don't be stupid don't get completely raptured especially because you have to consider it's very likely you're probably uh, uh, people may be listening to this podcast two years from now when we're in the middle of a, a bull run and they've lost their freaking mind which i get we've been there just when you're most raptured by the asset tour is when probably when public hype the highest shouldn't. and so, and so exactly. people have a tendency to get emotionally wound up and and you're a lot of bitcoin you have to earn your stripes for a few years because the chances are good you entered high and you're going to have to go through the low i was going to add and and consider even the best case scenario where like you know you put a significant amount of your wealth in bitcoin and uh and you're on a rocket ship and bitcoin goes up you know 5x in a year if you you're in the U.S. and you sell within that first year, you're gonna face really oh, steep dude. capital gains taxes. Really steep. Daddy Uncle and, Sam's and, gonna take you to the washers. Right, and yeah. and so and then it's tempting to be like, oh, but I'm not gonna pay it now. I'm gonna postpone it, and then by the time you're entering the next year, maybe the price going down, and all of a sudden you it, anyway. So it gets really messy yeah. um, very quickly, and uh, and it doesn't mean that it cannot be a you know, a, a potential strategy, but it's just keep in mind, like do a bit of back of the napkin calculations before you invest just to That's be like, advice. okay, what are these different scenarios that are possible here? Even if I'm as bullish as I am, all right, let's write out the bullish scenario. When I'm going to sell a little bit, how much taxes is that going to cost me? Okay. What about yes, the mean, a like ABC, like have a, what is the medium scenario? Okay. And then now what is the bad scenario? And then be like, okay, am I okay with all three? Yes. All right. Let's check with the wife as well. Is she okay with that? Okay. Now we can go. Something like that. Yeah. Having a plan like, oh, okay, I'm going to, if this number is hit, I'm paying off my house and I'm saving enough for to, to pay taxes in that scenario if it happens. That's a, I mean, a plan that is worth pursuing for a lot of people. Like that just makes your life easier. And it's not all about just getting extremely rich. It's, I mean, saving your money and investing your money is about making your life easier. Like, I don't think, I think it's a huge win if you can get yourself out of debt, just simply that. And I mean, try to retain as much Bitcoin as you can, but there's nothing wrong with taking some risk off the table, taking some exposure off and, you know, divesting even into some other assets when you've seen that this thing, you know, did what you expected and you don't need to YOLO everything into a single asset, even though you might have huge expectations for it, or you think it's going to be worth $10 million in 20 years. Like you still got to live your life. Yeah, one of the hard things is as is, is well is that in these bull runs is that oftentimes it kind of, at least in, in the Bitcoin's history, it has coincided with all other speculative manias that happen at the same time. And so even though you're, it's hard to, it's easy to mistake the world for yourself sometimes. Like, I'm a conservative guy, you know, I just invested this much in Bitcoin and now it's going up and I'm on this rocket ship. Keep in mind that a lot of the other people who are piling in and pushing the price real high, they may not have diamond hands like you do, right? They, they may be just very opportunistic, but uh, YOLOing, uh, Wall Street bets, all that stuff. And so um, it, 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 all of a sudden you're on a train and 80% of the train are degenerate gamblers. So like keep that in mind too. Like, you know, you can like, it's just i just find it to me is one of the biggest challenges to not mistake the world for myself is like to not assume that everybody else 
has the same mentality that I do. And so it's it's hard actually to not get caught up in the speculative mania once you're on it's it. Like hard. I mean, we both were there when Bitcoin went to sixty five K. I thought we were gonna go over hundred. I really did. Oh, so did I. You know? Yeah. I, it was such an unexpected thing for it to do what it did, that double top where it faked yeah. everyone out. You know, the pump fake got everybody. Everyone expected that same crazy fervor straight up like in 2017 or 20 what was it before that 2013 or 2015 uh anyway yeah it totally pump faked that time and it's it's kind of like what you expect out of markets expect exactly what you don't expect because when everyone is in the same direction expecting the same thing more often than not something very unexpected happens to the majority of the participants it's fun, and it's also extremely hard to be contrarian. It's so hard yes. to be contrarian. You get caught up, right? Everybody's excited. And then in the bear market, everybody's apathetic. <laughs> totally. I, I also think a, a, a cautionary tale to the, the novice crypto bro who has not yet been fucked by the long dick of capital gains tax. Like one thing we've found is that there and this is a this is a beautiful thing in a lot of ways but it can also be a little bit of a trap is there are a lot of people that get into bitcoin and and we would say unfortunately more broadly broadly crypto that have no trading finance even real investing background right this is their their introduction and so they're 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 not just taking gains into usd during bull runs they're moving from token to token creating all these different taxable events and then sitting there in the bear market unaware that capital gains even exist like these we, we've seen this we've watched this i i've, I've shared a conversation yep. on the show of me saying to someone like how's how did that work you move that stuff like what's the deal with the capital gains just out of curiosity and the person was like what are capital gains what uh, <laughs> oh my yeah. god dude holy yeah. fuck and and yeah certainly you could maybe take some losses or whatever but people are a lot of them completely blind to this and so if you are that new crypto entrant and trader who's riding some high and thinking this is easy, be very careful when and how you're moving coin. Now you can take the outlook of like, oh, I'm going to stay dark. Dude. No. And, and I don't, I don't no, mean to no. be, I don't mean to be like a, a statist cuck here, but I, I will because people will knock on your door. It's not like people in this space are the only ones using digital tools. Josh and I have gamed out unbelievably realistic scenarios that are obviously occurring and will occur more where the IRS also has tons of tricks up their sleeve with data. There's some simple queries you can run on God, the places yeah. people are trading and onboarding where they don't even need an agent. They can write an algorithm that says, if someone did this and they haven't done this, send them a piece of mail. And that's going to increasingly happen. So just be careful if you're out there trading. No, and Josh yeah. could, couldn't resonate anymore of like the, yeah. the point of Bitcoin is to empower average individuals, right? Both here in the United States, our demographic being the middle class and below, but internationally. And if you're if you're harnessing an empowerment tool but creating exorbitant stress in your life, it's doing the exact opposite of that. And at least our early crypto experiences cuz you know, to our audience is aware, but we were similar. We had this diversification outlook of kind of a minority crypto position with a big Bitcoin position, but even having that and messing with it and moving from thing to thing, I just remember being being stressful and messy and we we paid some of the consequences of some of those moves from a gain standpoint that I just just articulated. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and keep in mind, like, I mean, I know that it's only going to be a fraction of a percent of your audience who even thinks about, you know, dodging taxes, but like a blockchain is designed to store everything forever. (laughs) So like you got to run the rest of your life. 
you know, I was like, no, 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 like, no, just, just don't. Uh, and by the way, I shared this, uh, like, tweet that I did in 2018. It was, uh, I don't know if you see it in the chat there. Um, it's like uh, this guy, it's like a festival, and there's all these porta potties in a row. And there's this dude who's like running on top of the on top of the porta potties. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's being like pelted with like be- beer uh, bottles. And I, I wrote as like this is the the average crypto trader uh, facing the IRS in 2018. Like because in the end, yeah. he does get hit in the head and he falls off. Um, it was brutal. It was brutal. Uh, early 2018, when the bear market hit, like people realized, oh my god, I'm waking up from this this gambling days like yeah. d-a-z-e yeah and i have to pay the hooker and it's expensive <laughs> i'm in vegas yeah. I, I just had a great time in vegas but right my flight's in two hours i owe the hooker 3800 bucks i can't see straight yeah that's what happens when you wake up after a fucking crypto orgy and her pimp has a gun <laughs> yeah it's like walking into a wild west saloon as somebody who's just a uh, just you're walking in there's a bunch of ruffians uh, like you're on binance like there's a scammer everywhere and when you get to the door you're going to get robbed on the way out by the irs yeah and then there's this bitcoin oasis man that's that's just so fundamentally different the, i think you're you're in a way it's a joke but you're you're actually correct that um there is so much more shadiness and fraud and shenanigans going on in the world of crypto at large versus Bitcoin. Bitcoin really is a bit of a a bit of an oasis. Like for sure, you can get screwed in Bitcoin. Like yeah, and there's no bailouts, and you know you got to be real careful. And probably Binance doesn't have all the reserves. Like they're probably going to go bust at some point. So you got to be careful. But but Bitcoin as a platform is not designed to screw you over. Like imagine how much more in danger you are if you start engaging with a coin that's actually designed to get all your money, like to steal from you. Yeah. I actually tweeted this this morning. I'm going to read a tweet. The conflation of crypto and Bitcoin is what we've been referring to as Bitcoin camouflage for years. In our view, the connection between these two and broader discourse presents an opportunity for those who recognize their foundational differences. The former, that being crypto, is primarily an innovation in VCs scamming retail with limited to zero use case. And the vast majority of tokens are deeply disempowering for most of society, especially the middle class and below. The latter, that being Bitcoin, is a truly decentralized, radically inclusive, barrier-breaking, accountability-inducing, equitable, and sound crack in the friction-filled walled garden that is 21st century global finance. To dumb that down... These two things are not just different, they're foundationally different. And I would argue especially so for average Joes who are totally lost in this massive blur of complex 21st century finance and really have no fucking idea where their allocations are even going in retirement, right? Here comes this simplistic, empowering protocol. This is the whole point of what we're up to that is really tailor-made for for a fireman, right? And 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 crypto at least the way we see it at this date and time, and we just covered this in our last basics episode. It was titled Bitcoin, not crypto, but it, it's it's not just different. It's totally the opposite. But back to the camouflage comment off the top, that's part of the reason there's a buying opportunity. Because when, uh-huh. when investors sit here, especially when you think about institutional finance, big family offices, companies, whatever, they are looking at an absolute circus. And they they think Bitcoin is kind of the the the, the elephant in the middle of the ring. 
Yep. If you really study, you see that it's not, but it's understandable. I have sympathy for people that still have the two conflated, but that is an sure. opportunity for the little guy right now. And what you're, what you're outlining there is basically information asymmetry. Like if you're listening yes. to this and if you've listened to this for a period of time, if you're engaged in a lot of these other Bitcoin podcasts that have people that understand what they're talking about and are proliferating this information to you, you have an asymmetrical advantage over probably 99% of people out there. And that is the advantage to you buying this thing right now, akin to buying the internet protocol in 1995 that makes it such a huge uh, advantage for you and, and your future and your family's future because that advantage is what's giving you the edge to be buying this thing at 30,000 instead of buying it at 150,000 or 500,000. Absolutely. Yeah, like there, there's so many wealthy people who are still so confused these days. Like they're into crypto, not realizing that they're super under allocated to Bitcoin. And so like if these people, like once they figure out what's actually going on, um, Bitcoin is going to go up that much more. Like I totally agree. Yeah, the Mark Cubans mm -hmm. of the world. I haven't heard oh, him peep yeah. much about uh, crypto or Bitcoin in the last year. He must have. Raul uh, Powell, Mark Cuban, like a lot. And those are the louder ones, but there's a lot of them. You know, if you talk to family offices or just people who are like very serious people that really, you know, sit on a lot of wealth who are still to this day uh, very confused. Or, I mean, to an extent, there's also opportunism where they feel like they can. They just, they just think one step, um, they're thinking of it as a product that the crowds are going to buy. Like they're like, oh, I wouldn't, they don't eat their own dog food, but they're like investing in it because they, they think people are going to like this idea, um, yeah. which is always a bit tricky. Just by the way, there's also a fun analogy between Bitcoin and fighting sports. <laughs> Cause like, you know how like in the eighties there was all this like bullshito, like all these like weird guys that like had their own martial arts and they could like you know from a distance like you know knock people to the ground and stuff and then mma came along and it's kind of like sure if you think you're amazing like come into the ring we have some basic rules and there is like uh anybody can fight anybody and so in a way that did away with so much of the bullshito because uh there was like a there was a a mechanism to verify whether you are the real deal or not. And I feel like Bitcoin is kind of the MMA ring. It's kind of yeah. like where, you know, if you think you got entrepreneurial uh, uh, skills, like, yeah, let's come into the Bitcoin arena, show me what you got. Like, don't just issue your own coin where, you know, yeah. like, like Vitalik talks about that sometimes where like, we get to make our own laws of physics. It's kind of true what he's saying. It's ridiculous, yeah. but it's true. You know, he, in his little universe, he can just make up whatever he wants. And then it's easy to win, like you rig the game in your favor. But like, what about coming to Bitcoin where there are no bailouts and there are no DAOs that are going to be hard forked away? Um, you just get to compete with these basic rules against the rest of the yes. world. Yeah, get in the ring. Alan Farrington's book, Bitcoin is Venice. That he, I think it's the first chapter, isn't it, Dan? When he, he talks about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, we started our episode with him, talked about uh, martial arts and Bitcoin for, I don't remember, 20, 30 minutes. I That's think we true. talked to him actually, like a year he, ago. He writes about that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. that. Uh, but yeah, it's get in the ring. Let's see. It's Mark Zuckerberg versus Musk here. Let's see what actually plays out. And <laughs> by the way, I think Zuckerberg is going to, if that actually does happen, he's going to mop the floor with Musk. That dude yeah. is he's serious. <laughs> I agree. 
Um, I want to put you on the spot here for a second tour. I know this is, I mean, you write so much about the potential coming bull market. Do you have expectations for what you expect to see during this one? Do you think it's going to be kind of play by its normal book, do another exponential run up to some obscene number, and then kind of duck for cover again for a few years? How do you, how do you see this playing out? There, I, there is this thesis of uh, the what is it called again? The mega cycle? No, the uh, super cycle. Hyper Bitcoinization. Super. No, cycle. well, yeah, yeah the super cycle of Bitcoin, where it's like you know, this time we're not gonna you know have a big bear market again. It's just gonna kind of keep going up because the money is melting down. Meanwhile, um, and that's kind of like that's kind of a model where you know how like you see these Bitcoin price charts that are logarithmic that kind of like have an arc to them like that but people think like oh it's going to go like that and then level out at a million dollars like that's going to be the shape of it but then if you look at adoption curves which i mean to be fair it's a different scale because you're talking about percentage of the population that adopts it but yes. usually those ones are uh s shaped like they go like this right uh wait mm -hmm. it's like yeah kind of like that um yep and so anyway there's a there's a an argument to be made that if you know, we see that we can see a similar shape of the Bitcoin price, where at some point we're actually going to speed up again. Whereas in the beginning, we had a big speed up from 2010 to 2012, where we had massive percentage of gains and then it leveled out more. And we could actually go up very fast like that again, which is kind of the Weimarization of the price. Like that, you know, a gold ounce didn't change in quality during the 1920s. Even though the price went to a trillion marks, uh, it was just the money that melted down. So anyway, I, I don't think cycles are going to go away because human emotion is just always there. And and you know, if people once people believe that something is a sure thing and everybody mm. bets on it, yeah. that disproves the theory, and that means we're going to overshoot and we got to correct. And so there's always going to be. But I think nominally speaking. I think the the crashes are going to become a bit more shallow and and shorter lasting, just because the inflation is going to be running up uh, more and more over the years. For this cycle, I mean, I think there's I like the saying of like there's no fever like Bitcoin fever, because <laughs> people said that about gold in the past, right? If there's a gold rush, it's like there's just nothing like it, and so you can't say like oh it's got to be another one of those run-of-the-mill bitcoin cycles because it's mm. once you're in it it's insane you know you yeah. get these rallies that are just like holy hell we just doubled in price like i this is trading like a penny stuff right i mean this doesn't happen to assets that are like half a trillion i think people are going to be surprised at how high we can go in this cycle um i, I mean i think in the report i say north of 120,000 because i i want to be you know, I, I want to kind of have a, a, a reasonable confidence band of what I predict, but, uh, yeah. you know, we, we could go way higher. And it's going to be a wall of worry, right? We're going to have corrections on the way. It's, th that's why it doesn't go up in a straight line. Like, you know, people, people have to adjust to this new environment and, and a lot of people are going to feel FOMO. And then, anyway, so in, 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 on the chart, it's going to look probably similar, but it's just... The environment is going to be different. There's going to be more political hostility towards Bitcoin. So I think mm. some of the pullbacks, remember back in 2017, the pullbacks were often about trust in the Bitcoin system. Like, oh, is there going to be another, I don't know, a big block? Are they going to win or not? Like it was this kind of like weirdly civil war, like an internal conflict. And I think 
now the scares are going to be more like some big government that makes like a big statement or cracks down or you know i i feel like that's more what we're up against you mentioned weimar germany something that i've studied a lot and i know dan has too the gold price during that decade was extremely volatile i mean it whipsawed up and down as people regained confidence in the mark as people lost confidence in the mark i think comparing this to that is probably apt but it's also i want to remind people don't get greedy i mean expose yourself to as much as you can reasonably but don't start leveraging because if you start leveraging you get whipsawed back down and you lose your entire investment in that situation leverage is your enemy in this especially when things are volatile like that unless you're you know a 1% trader just don't expose yourself to that because you're just going to get yourself a lot more gray hairs as tor said earlier i would maybe tweak that i would maybe say like you know make a separate bucket if you're gonna like add leverage like make a separate bucket keep it below five percent at all time don't allow yourself to go above it if it goes to zero you just lost five percent because you're gonna spend five yeah. percent of your of your assets to pay off the debt i mean of course if the price goes down that percentage might go up and you might end up losing 20 percent, even though you should leverage with only five so anyway like because it's one of those things where like yeah don't drink but if you've got a drink you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah do it responsibly yeah <laughs> With the Weimar thing, if you went too long gold early, you ended with no gold. Back to what we were saying earlier. But that's so mind-blowing when you think about what gold did. I think it was you, Tour, that wrote in one of your pieces. Maybe it's someone else. Sorry if I'm... There was something to the effect of, you know, if you heavily invested in, I don't know, video streaming in the 90s or something, um, you lost everything. Or, or something along those lines. Like you yep. can be early. Yep. The the timing and the technology need to match, and you need to hedge those risks if the timing and the the investment aren't there. Yeah, I think I even say that in the report uh, in the section about whether you should invest in Bitcoin startups mm. because I think Bitcoin is a sure thing, in my opinion. You know, I'm 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 fully allocated. Um, in terms of conviction uh but that doesn't mean that every bitcoin startup is going to be great some of those are going to be overestimating what bitcoin can do in the short term so they're going to be the equivalent of like yeah having a video streaming company in 1999 which by the way is what mark cuban kind of had right he had that and then he got a big exit yeah he sold the yahoo i think yeah and then it just did nothing because it was way too early like it went to zero He's, I've heard him talk about the timing on that. He just got purely lucky. He sold yep. like six months before the whole dot-com crash. I mean, perfect timing. You gotta yeah, have good timing, you know? I, I think Russ Hedeman actually in the Silicon Valley in the show is, is a little bit based off the unmarked Cuban. Because <laughs> I think uh, uh, ROI was his company. This is a digression, but like it, this is a fictional comedy show. Um, yeah, I've seen his company was ROI. It was like radio on internet. So it was like, I think it's like a pun. It's like a little jab at, at Mark Cuban. Uh, we could, we could, the problem here, Josh, is the next questions that I'm thinking about asking are going to end up in another 40 minutes. So I think I'm going to use the self-control not to, unless you got something you really want to throw in. Cause this thing, this hour and a half has been, it's been really, awesome. really spectacular tour. We, We'd love to have you back on another time. Uh, sure. Because there's a yeah. myriad of questions we could go at from here. But any handoff you want to give to uh, your work 
Yeah, if people Google my name, I think the first link is my Twitter handle and then adamantresearch.com, A-D-A-M-A-N-T, um, probably like adamantium or adamant. That is um, my research company. And if you go there, there is a, a backlog of my previous reports that you can just download there. And then there's also a link to my latest report, which is out of position for the Bitcoin boom. It's... Uh, 20 pages. It's the best I got. It's really meant for, on the one hand, investment professionals, like has value for them, but it really is very purposely written to be accessible for family and friends because literally that's what I did. I sent it to family yeah. and friends as well. It's very well done. Highly sure. recommend it. And each one of these pieces has been written if you, if you backlog them. Josh, at uh, fairly opportune times for the investor. Obviously, past performance doesn't guarantee the future, but you, you've been very timely with when you've chosen to publish these, which is uh, at least a reason to check them out if you haven't and you're listening. Tour, we'll do this again. Appreciate you. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Appreciate it. Thank you. Until next time, man. Thanks for listening, everybody. G. Willikers is Tour and Lightning to talk to. Not just smart and thoughtful, but also been around so long in Bitcoin that his insights just hit differently. If you're enjoying BCB, you can do us a legitimate favor by taking 10 seconds to like and subscribe or give us the full 90 seconds and leave us a review on Apple or your platform of choice. The place the two of us choose to stream sats and listen to pods is the Fountain app. Find us there and let us know what you think of these episodes. And if you clip a part of this episode on Fountain and tweet it at us, we'll send you 500 sats just for kicks and giggles. Lastly, if you are planning to go to Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville next July, ticket prices go up next week. You can use promo code BCB24, that's BCB24, for 10% off already deeply discounted tickets. Till next week, keep on stacking Bitcoin, you gorgeous savages. Yeah, 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 yeah.